This episode is brought to you by the insurance agent I use for my own business, Doug Lynch, and his broker, Tracy Deerfelt, with the Nationwide Contractors Alliance. In the last year, I got to know Doug and Tracy as they were consulting for me on some questions I had for my own company. And after more than a decade in the business, I can confidently say I didn't even understand half the equation when it comes to general liability insurance. I'm confident, actually, that very few builders do. I had some big gaps in my understanding and even more in my coverage. Now, this is a risk-heavy business, and you can't leave everything you've built, no pun intended, to chance. Make sure you have good protection. Make sure you have reliable protection, and make sure the agents you work with have your back. Doug and Tracy are by far the best I've found in the business, or I wouldn't use them myself. They assessed my particular business, built me a customized plan around it, and now, of course, I sleep better at night as a result. Visit douglaslynch.com and nwcalliance.com to learn more about how insurance and other solutions can really work for builders. Somehow, we have gotten 60-ish episodes into this thing, and we've never talked about punch list, which is a shame, but that's going to change today. We've got Brian Kaplan on the show. Brian is a business consultant for home builders and construction professionals. Brian has over 20 years experience in the industry. Uh, prior to launching his consulting business, he was an owner himself, general manager, home inspector. And I've gotten to know Brian a little bit as he was living in Austin for a little while. And one of the things that really impressed me about him is his focus on systems and processes. And of course, that is exactly what a good punch list system is about. So without further ado, let's launch into this. So Brian, we're talking about how to eliminate uh, punch lists and specifically why a checklist system is is the solution to something that plagues so many of us. So there's a lot of good stuff to dive into here. I want to start though, real high level analysis because as you and I were talking about off air before, uh, the, the everybody it seems like there's real no standard to terminology in this industry. So let's first start with something that seems very basic. Define for us exactly what you're referring to when you refer to the punch list. And that's a great point that you've raised. And I think that everybody does have a different kind of qualification for what this is. So for me, I kind of look at it. I look at two different things. I look at a punch list being, these are all the items that we need to complete in a building project. They are highlighted by our team, often highlighted with our client walkthrough. So if we're doing like a substantial completion walkthrough, there's a lot of items that are going to go onto this list. And these are items that we need to complete either prior to their occupancy or, you know, shortly after they actually occupy the house. Um, so it's really those little sort of to do's. And the one thing I, I really like to clarify, and I'm glad you asked for the definition is from a mindset perspective, punch list is still paid work. It's not deficiency work and they are separate things. And so that's a really important clarification as we start this podcast today. Okay. 
let's actually get into that because now you really piqued my interest. So <laughs> paid work versus efficiency work. How do you define each of those and how do you determine which, which goes where? Yeah. And one of the things that I've talked a lot about, and I've just experienced a lot in my 20 year plus career is that clients start to evaluate where the paid part of their process ends and where the unpaid part tends to begin. And when we talk about unpaid part, we talk about maybe deficiencies, for example. So this would be like work that has already been done, has been paid for, but there is, it's not up to standard. You're in full agreement as a builder that this is not up to standard and something that you're going to correct. And it's typically at the builder's cost. Um, whereas when we talk about things that are on the punch list, this is work that's happening in progress and it gets a little murky here. So I'll try to keep the lines clear, but there's always kind of, I used to say to people, there's anywhere from two to 5% of your project is going to be errors. And, you know, basically the, you know, it, let me, there's a really good quote here for this. Um, when I was at IBS this year, John Crabb said that, uh, he's a builder outside of Knoxville, Tennessee. And he said that, you know, your house is man-made. He said, Jesus was a carpenter, but he wasn't one of the carpenters that worked on your house. And I, and I just love that line because it really helps to exemplify and really humanize it for people to understand, hey, look, we're human. We're, yeah, we're professional builders and we build to a really high standard, right? But it is man-made and there are going to be things that are going to be sort of errors in the process. It doesn't mean that they're not costs of work. And so, you know, it's, it, it is a little murky, but it tends to be the timeline of it all. So in other words, as we get close to where we get to substantial completion or someone's going to move into the house, a client's mindset starts to shift to, well, you know, now if I see an error, it's more of a deficiency versus just work in progress kind of thing. And that's really the distinction I'm trying to make is that for the most part, when we talk about a punch list, those items that are on there, that is work in progress, right? Even if it's something that has to get tweaked or fixed, or it's just not quite up to standard, um, that's stuff that we have to do. Deficiencies are things that, you know, typically after they've moved in, there's something wrong with something. It's not performing its intended, you know, sort of result, whatever it is. It could be something with an appliance. Um, there could be, you know, a shower valve, which is a very common one where the hot water isn't quite calibrated properly. Those are what I would call more like deficiency items. Yeah. Okay. To throw a few examples out here, just to understand how you break this out. If you're walking a house with a client and you're walking up the stairs and there's some, some scratch up the stairs and the way things always work out in construction, you don't know exactly who you can't ever prove who did it, but there's a scratch there. Um, and, and they come back and say, well, this is something that obviously somebody on your crew did. So, I want to add this to the punch list, but, but I shouldn't have to pay a few hundred bucks for the drywall and, and painter to come back and do it. How, how is that negotiated? And I guess it all depends. Again, for me, it's all about the timing. So um, if that's something that they're noticing once they've moved in and they've been in there for a few weeks and then they say that this is a touch up here or there or whatever, you know, then for me, how I always used to price jobs and approach the process was that our painter would always bill in about or build in about four to six hours of basically we call it extra time or after they moved in and likely that scratch up the stairs is from their movers. But of course, you know, there's no point in getting into an argument with a client about who made the scratch, as you mentioned. So 
you know, the, the idea would be that I would actually treat that at the cause and just kind of build that into our kind of costing. Um, but again, to answer your question directly, it really depends on the timing. If it's something where you're at 90% or 95% substantial completion and you're walking through the house and they say, okay, there's touch-ups here, this, that, whatever, that's work in progress. That's work that's not complete. We're still in there. We're still moving around. There's still materials going up and down the stairs, floor protections coming out. There's likely going to be some of those, you know, sort of nicks and dings that happen. Yeah. Okay. This is a real gray area, which makes it fun for me to explore because it's, yeah. it's more, there's, there's a lot of angles to this. Oh, for sure. So, okay. Now what, what about, um, the way we do it with, with our punch list and I'm not saying it's the perfect way, but we, we have one walkthrough prior to closing after we get CO prior to closing where we go walk it with the client and we develop this one comprehensive punch list that gets signed off on. So it's actual paper checklist of everything that's found and and what and during that we go and and we'll let them blue tape the house as well and we use that signed the signed punch list as a as a like a line in the sand say everything that's on here that you walk the house you you communicate with our construction manager and he agrees you guys both sign off on it we're taken care of but the, after that point, and it's signed and dated after that, then we're not continuing to do more. Like you can't just continue to send us more punch list things as you're in the house every every single, you know, every single minute where you find something you in real time text us a photo, some some other tiny little thing that you find. That's that's the way we do it. Um, is is that generally what you find as best practice, or can that be improved upon? No, I think that's a great way to do it. I think the big key there is, you know, you, you've got to get it in writing no matter what it is. And so if it's a, you know, a big sort of checklist or punch list that you're putting together in that walkthrough, you're getting a physical sign off and, you know, maybe in light of coronavirus, it's a digital sign off. Um, but, you know, everyone's agreeing to the terms. We put it in writing and we're agreeing to those terms. And then, yeah, above and beyond that, you know, is definitely, we all have gotten as builders, we've all gotten those late night text messages and several of them. We've all shown up to do paint touch-ups and can't see me right now, but I'm holding up my hands and using bunny ears on this because you, you give them a roll of blue tape and it looks like, you know, there's no paint left on the wall because there's just tape everywhere. So it's basically a full repaint. And so we know how that can really quickly spiral out of control. And I think the reality is, is as you said, it's really a gray area because when it comes down to it, there might be some sort of defect with the product that actually presents itself three weeks, you know, into once they've moved in, you've got your certificate of occupancy, they move in, you know, you did all your punch lists and everything, but then something breaks or something just stops working and stops functioning. And then, you know, how do you treat that kind of thing? And so I think there's always going to be exceptions to the rule. Um, but I think generally that's a great, yeah, definitely a great practice for every builder listening to this is, you know, get it in writing, do that thorough walkthrough state that you, you, you did a really good job of expressing to the client. Here's the expectation I have of you. In other words, bring all of your complaints right now. Because this is the opportunity for you to get it down on paper where we agree to it and then we'll take care of it kind of thing. So I, I love that. The, the other side of this that we try to communicate is then, so you got your punch list that we complete and then we don't like to come back unless it's an emergency item until that one year 
warranty period. So we try to box everything into that, into that punch list window that's marked off. So everything that isn't included on that, we try to communicate to them needs to wait for that first year when we come back. Now, that's the way we set it up to try to create a, a process to discourage countless, you know, middle of the night texts. But the, so here, here's then the gray area. The gray area is that, you know, we've worked with these clients for over a year, usually. And you got a good relationship with them. You're at the end of the project. You just want to, you know, keep them happy at that point, be done with it. And so it's, whenever they do come back, even though you've kind of got the letter of the law on your side, if they do come back with, with additional, uh, a few additional things, that's where it still becomes, it, it does become harder to say no. And maybe I'm, maybe I'm a pushover on that stuff with our clients. <laughs> um, but it is it, the way I see it is we'll still go back sometimes and, and, uh, take care of some of the things just to kind of maintain the client relationship with it all within rate reason. But we've got the punch lit, the signed punch list and our process and procedure, which we kind of define as the letter of the law to where we can fall back on it. If we wanted to, if we wanted to force them to follow, you know, our procedure. But again, we will try to soften up on it sometimes just to, just to maintain the relationship. Do you have any opinions on that? You think we're, you think we're too soft? No, definitely not. And I think, you know, I could sum it up in a way by saying that, you know, the line that I've always kind of identified with is that as a builder, as a professional builder, you're really a relationship company and that construction is just something that you do. And I think that, you know, as much as we want to be black and white about specific things and say, okay, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Homeowner, this is your opportunity to bring all of the, you know, things that you see, let's put it on a list, let's sign off on it life is messy. Life is organic. It's fluid. And I think that it's important to bring that approach to how you manage that client relationship. Because ultimately, one of the things that I talk about in you know the sales course that I run is you've got this um, ability to have you know this unpaid sales force that can work for you. So how well you treat a client before, during, and especially after their project's completed and delivered and they're living there is so paramount for being able to leverage that relationship. And so, yeah, if you have to send somebody back for a couple hours to tighten up some towel bars, um, do a little bit of, you know, uh, filler on a wall and do a little dry brush touch up and, you know, just a couple little things to keep somebody happy. Sometimes it's not necessarily the little things that are the problem for somebody. A client's mindset might be that they just want to know that, you know, the builder is kind of there and that you're not just going to sort of disappear and that, you know, they're heard, you know, that they just want to be heard sometime that, Hey, this wasn't up to my standard and they want to see how you kind of react. So I think definitely, you know, again, life is messy. It's not black and white. There's definitely a lot of gray here. And I think, you know, you want to set those expectations at the beginning of it, but then you also have to judge this, right? You know, that there are some people that if you give them an inch, they'll take a mile. You also know that there are some people that, I might put down a few things on the list. And then as the time rolls around, they've kind of forgotten about it and it doesn't really bother them anymore. They're not hypersensitive to it. And so, you know, as a business owner, of course, we have to judge our clients and know, you know, which ones are kind of red flag clients. And you'll know this by now because you've, you know, built a house with them. You've been in a relationship for at least a year with them and you're going to know kind of what their tendencies are. So, no, I think the approach is great. And as I said, I think, you know, focusing on the relationship is something that I always talk about um, over kind of the transaction. Yeah. Well, 
what I hear you saying, the two, two big points that I've keyed in on so far, and I may have missed something. So let's come back to anything I've missed, but the, the signed punch list, you mentioned money, kind of having money in the budget, or at least negotiating up front with your painter that there'll be some sort of, uh, you know, call where they, they'll come back and within a certain scope and do some stuff, um, which, which we do. And I 100% agree with what are some of the other things you have any other bullet points that you feel like builders need to hit when they're thinking about this, this punch list. Yeah. I think the, the, the big one for me is just that, you know, the reason that checklists in general are so effective is that it gives people an opportunity to catch things that are kind of hiding in plain sight. So let me unpack that a little bit. And when, when we talk about, you know, kind of looking at a punch list, that's kind of like the end of the project, right? That's, and we're using, you can call it a punch list or you can call it a checklist. They're really one in the same. It's basically a form, whether it's a piece of paper or it's a digital platform with to do's and you know, you're writing in all the things that are kind of left to be done. Um, the difference is that a checklist can actually be predictive. And so again, the punch list is at the end, the checklist is something that, you know, really is putting this into place in your company. It's, it's a point to sort of systematize the, uh, the business. And I always sound silly when I say systematize, but apparently that's the right word. Systemize is not the right word. So I just want to clear that up for anybody listening and wondering why I'm saying that. But, um, you know, using a checklist system, allows you to kind of catch these things before they're actually becoming problems. And so a second ago, I said that, you know, these errors and these challenges or things that are going to end up on a punch list, they might hide in plain sight. And, you know, I've got countless examples, obviously we're doing a podcast, so I can't show some of these physical examples, but I've had so many instances in my own construction career where you've walked by something day in and day out. You don't recognize it being an issue. Um, A simple one would be if you've got, you know, an area of a house that you're building and there's going to be a wall mounted handrail. So it's going to have a stem bracket that's got to get secured into a wall. I can't tell you how many times I've seen over my construction career, drywall being opened on the backside of that, whether it's a hallway or wherever it is, so that, you know, plywood or some sort of blocking can go in so that there's a strong attachment for that, that handrail. Obviously that becomes you know, an issue because then there's, you know, if it's at the end of the project, which typically is when the handrails go in, now that thing ends up on the punch list, right? Because there's now drywall to patch and repaint. Obviously the wall's already been painted, the trim's been done, everything's been sort of caulked and cleaned and all of that. So it's one of those scenarios where it's, it's, you know, you could have avoided it, but it ends up on that punch list. Yeah. Okay. I'll tell you one of the things that, um, that for us is key and I may be going off the rails a little bit, but I want to mention it before I forget it with a, with a punch list, we always like to have negotiated in our contract that the punch list is not, uh, a, a reason to hold the last draw. So, um, that's always a big thing, you know, where sometimes punch list items can even things that get negotiated, like we're talking about upfront and signed off on can still take a few weeks to perhaps complete them all. Sometimes they might require kind of longer lead times thing where you're ordering a replacement toilet lid that got broken or whatever. Um, so for us, it's important in our contract to have upfront that the final draw is not, um, contingent payment for that is not contingent upon completion of the punch list. Um, I've seen a lot of builders go wrong with that. So I think it's worth throwing this into the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it really comes down to just 
um, managing that relationship and setting those expectations with a client. You know, the, the interesting thing about it is what I've seen over the time that I've been involved in working with clients is clients actually do want you to tell them how it's going to sort of operate. And it's why we talk about this and whether it's a sales process or just in general on how you operate as a company, you know, they actually want to be told how you operate. They want to be told kind of in a way what to do. And that's when we talk a lot about setting those client expectations, just like you were saying about, you know, the last draw is not contingent on this punch list. Like this is, you have our guarantee that, you know, anything that's agreed upon, it's in our contract. This is what we're going to sort of complete for you. Um, but yeah, you can't, I mean, it can, things can drag on for a very long time. I mean, I've had you know, super high end houses that we've built where there's, you know, something wrong with a fixture that might take six months to get. And obviously if you've got a, a large balance outstanding, which hopefully you don't by the end of a project, but if you do, that can cripple, you know, small business very easily. So I think it's a great process to have that in your contract for sure. Yeah. I'll share this with you. You may already know this, but here's a pro tip. So my longtime director of construction, says rather than just giving the clients a roll of roll of blue tape he gives them about a foot of of blue tape or i don't know exactly what how much he gives but some something that's much less than a roll to help <laughs> to help uh encourage or discourage people from using that whole thing up which is kind of kind of uh human psychology i think that's a i think it's a fantastic little little hack Oh, uh, for sure. Keeps people from, people tend to use up exactly what's given to them, you know? <laughs> so. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's brilliant. I actually had no, had never thought of that. I, I mean, there's been times where I've only had a partial roll and thought, oh yeah, this will be good enough. But yeah, a specific, like a foot or two feet of it is actually very clever. Yeah. Yeah. And then at a minimum, they got to come back and ask you, you know, for another, another stretch, which yeah. will, will discourage, dissuade some people. So for sure. Absolutely. Well, the, I like your checklist approach. I think it's, I think it's systematic. I think it's uh, rational and practical, which is, which is are two, several qualities that really intrigue me about it. It reminds me of a, a book I've wanted to read. I've never actually read. You probably have called, was it, is it the checklist manifesto? Yes. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, obviously I assume what that book's about, but I've heard rave reviews about it. It's been on my list for a long time and I have honestly never gotten around to it, but you, you got me encouraged to potentially check that out. Just given your, your, uh, emphasis on the same subject. Yeah. And so it's a great book by uh, Atul Gawande. He's, um, you know, world renowned surgeon and author. He's written a few books and in the book, he really goes through a bunch of different scenarios some of these uh, a lot of them are related to world health and so the who is the world health organization is involved in a lot of these and they give he gives some really detailed you know excellent sort of case study examples and just shows the power of these things and you know one of the industries that's adopted this probably before anybody is aviation and you know when there's you know, it might be interesting for people to know and I always share this example is that there is a a seven step checklist that's pretty much you know, FAA standard in every single airplane, commercial airplane that flies in for engine failure. Now they have a book of hundreds and that's what the pilot and co-pilot are always doing sitting in, you know, the cockpit, you know, 45 minutes before you take off is going through a series of checklists. That's their normal pre-fight ritual. And again, the idea is prediction. It's about, did we check every single little thing before we get in the air kind of thing. Now on this checklist, I'm talking about when an engine fails, the top 
the top item on that list, number one is fly the plane. And it's, it's, it's funny how, you know, and hit the point of the book that he tries to make is that a checklist is a simple idea, but it's also about the information that's on there being simple enough to follow, especially in a moment where maybe you've got one side of your plane that's no longer got an engine kind of thing. And so it's just a really great read. Again, they get, he gives like some really great examples of um, things in aviation. They talk about, you know, world health type of studies and things like that, that they've done. Um, and it's definitely very worth the read. It was the inspiration for me writing that checklist book, um, that I know we, you know, we met in person, I, we were chatting about and I kind of showed you and, um, it was really just the kind of thing that I've looked at and wondered for a long time, why doesn't this exist? And why didn't I ever have these when I was a builder? Because you see the same mistakes happening over and over again. It wasn't like you didn't know these phases were coming up, but yet, you know, here we are again, kind of thing. So yeah, fantastic read. I highly recommend it. Now on that front in terms of like implementing these checklists, I think uh, you and I've talked a little bit about like technology and some of the different um, software programs available to builders. Do you think that there's any clear advantage over one system to, to implement these checklists over another? I mean, is a pen and paper just as good as some sort of fancy to-do list? You know, it's a great question. And I, and I, deal with this a lot because I work with a lot of different business owners and everybody's kind of got a different relationship to technology. Some people do like it. Some people don't like it. Some people are just completely averse to it. I think it really comes down to who is the person, who's the end user that's going to be utilizing these and just understanding how they interact with whether it's paper or it's um, an app or whatever it is. And in my time, what I've seen is the more complex that we make things, the the, there's less adoption and there's also less retention of whatever process you've put in. So um, in terms of, you know, applications out there, I mean, I have one client who's been successfully using this um, paired with builder trend and they basically put those into the to do's for every single project. It's a bit of a manual task, unfortunately. And then I've got clients that, you know, they've, I have a current client right now and he has the book, he put it in the hands of one of his lead carpenters and then he, like messaged me and said, Hey, can I get another one? Cause these guys just loved it. And I, we, he gave it to them and it's a physical book that they have on site and they use it all the time. And it's just standardized so many things from them. And of course, you know, I've written it from my perspective. So you take it and you modify and adjust and all of that. But yeah, I wouldn't say there's a, a you know, one thing that's better than the other. I think it's really about if the end goal is getting an end user to use this to streamline your projects, to reduce errors and, you know, miss steps in the process that end up on that punch list, then you've got to kind of take stock of who the people are in your team, how they're going to interact with it and kind of find the best way to connect with them on it. Yeah. That's my philosophy. It's that, you know, the best system's the one that you're going to use. So it doesn't really matter whether it's builder trend, pen and paper, Google docs, whatever, as long as you're going to use it and use it consistently, that's, that's the most important aspect to it. it for sure. So this, um, construction checklist that you have, I have seen it and you gave me a copy. I appreciate that. Uh, it's a, it's a, Fantastic checklist. I will definitely give that to you. Is it something that is uh, is an edible format? I have not asked you that. 
Yeah, great question. It's not. It's been coming up more recently. People have been asking me, you know, as time has gone on and, you know, people have been buying it, there have been those questions. And the, the clients that I work with one-on-one, we do work to kind of edit it that. But um, initially I was selling a print copy and now it's a digital copy as well. Um, the digital copy is not editable, but um, there is plans probably in the works for, for making that editable in the future. Well, it's, it's not that hard to get an admin to go in and, and add a few of your, your own pieces anyway. So I don't think that's, yeah, that's a big sure. deal. Um, sure. Okay, cool. Well, I definitely encourage people to check out that checklist. And uh, before we go, it's actually worth mentioning where they can get that. Where's the best place to go download that or to connect with you? Yeah. So easy ways to get in touch with me. Um, constructionconsulting.co is my web URL and note that that's a .co or .co, not a .com. And so that's the sort of main site on that page. There is a link to the checklist, but if you want to just short cycle that you can go to constructionconsulting.co forward slash checklist, and then you'll be brought to that page that talks about them, shows you a little bit of what's included in it. And um, you can always reach me by email as well. It's Brian with a Y at constructionconsulting.co. Again, .co, not, not .com. Yeah, cool. All right. Well, I guess uh, before we go, I got to ask you, we met while you were down here in, in Austin. Um, now with the, the pandemic, I think I understood from our emails that you're back up in Canada. Is that right? Yeah, we, uh, we left, we were, we were planning to come home late March anyways, like pretty much April 1st, we were going to leave. And, um, you know, with all the pandemic stuff, the, ins- the health insurance companies were basically pulling policies and saying, if you stayed after March 23rd, that you would no longer be covered for health insurance. And obviously not a good situation if, you know, you're, you're not, um, <laughs> a citizen of the country. So well, yeah. yeah, we, we ended up, um, we ended up, uh, splitting and, uh, and, you know, driving up, uh, to Canada. So we've been here for, uh, just over a month now we've been back. Yeah. Okay. Well, Brian, I appreciate you coming on the show. We've never talked about this punch list topic. I think it was overdue. You were, you were the man for the job. So thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. It's, uh, it was great to, uh, to chat and finally connect with you. Yeah, likewise. 